Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, we're going to be looking at how Jesus' position is greater. I don't think I've used that word yet, uh, but Jesus' position is greater. And as we look at this, we'll be walking through both chapters. I'm on some parts I will be paraphrasing, some parts I'll be reading as a whole. And in some, I'm just going to kind of give you the overall gist of that. So we can all understand uh, we can all understand the desire to move up the ladder, right, of success. We all want to do that to some extent. Either you've already done it, you're in the process of doing it, or at some point in the future you would like to move up the ladder of success. Now, when we think about position, that's kind of what we think about. You gain position. We understand that in that movement, positions are gained as well as responsibilities are gained as we move up, if you will, the ladder of success. Many of you have achieved various positions in your workplaces. You've moved uh, from a sales floor associate to a front-end manager uh, to department managing to office managing, possibly maybe even to store managing. I don't know how far you've gotten. But, you know, maybe, maybe in that position uh, you, you've really been able to uh, excel and exceed what was expected of you. And... But maybe, maybe this wasn't the language that was used where you worked, because that's primarily in a retail-type uh, atmosphere or that type of movement. But maybe you moved up in the power company or the gas company, uh, the railroad or an engineering firm, uh, the education system or so on. And with the advancement in position comes the added responsibility. I'd like to say that I semi-moved up when I worked at Walmart, started in as a cart pusher, that lowly position. Uh, being out in the heat and the cold and pushing carts. And back in the day, this, <laughs> walked up the hill one way and down the other with carts in my hand. I'm just kidding, barefooted. Uh, but when we first started pushing carts, there was no machine. There was no machine. Nowadays, you see them, they're like, I'm going to load them all up, press the little button in the little machine. You know, no, there was none of that. Matter of fact, we thought it was fun to have a competition to see um, who could push the most buggies at one time. And at one time, I pushed up, with the help of another gentleman, we pushed up 82 buggies at one time. There was no machine, but we had a lot of fun. And uh, there's another fella that we had a nickname for. His nickname was Pooh. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the whole story of that because it's probably not appropriate uh, from the pulpit. But uh, it was from Winnie the Pooh. Okay, Winnie the Pooh. Okay, so don't, don't go anywhere you shouldn't go. But his nickname was Winnie the Pooh. So we called him Pooh, and he was in the Pooh position which was always guiding the carts because he never pushed a single cart. So anybody who stood at the front and guided them was in the poo position. But anyway, uh, but I moved up from being a cart pusher, and then I got to go inside, and I worked uh, in, in one of the worst places ever in Walmart to work, and that's in toys and hardware. Now, I really thought hardware would be pretty cool. I was like, finally, I can get in here. I can learn stuff. You know what I mean? I can, I can grow my knowledge of tools and all this kind of stuff. no. It was a boring time. Basically, all I did was mix paint, okay? So I, I told the management, I said, please put me back in the parking lot. Put me back in the parking lot. Uh, it was so much more fun. <laughs> pushing carts and management wasn't right there on your heels all the time. So went back to pushing carts, and then I came into electronics where I spent five and a half years at Walmart. And uh, pushed, I worked in electronics, and then I trained. I became a trainer, and so I got 50 cents extra an hour. Ooh, such a great increase in money. Got 50 more cents an hour, and I trained uh, new employees that came in and finished out as a trainer working in electronics. 
But what they didn't know was I had picked up an assistant manager badge and just attached it to my name tag just for the fun of it, you know. Uh, never, did, never did get to be an assistant manager. Sure never saw the pay. Uh, but thankful I didn't have the responsibility. But I just thought it was fun. So I just attached it to my name tag. But anyway, um, so that was a little bit of my life at, at uh, Walmart. We had a lot of fun. Did a lot of crazy stuff at, farm, at, uh, at, I was about to say at Farmstead. At Walmart, did that too. But anyway, we, we know what it means to move up in, in, in our jobs and in our positions. We get positions, and as we get positions, we get more responsibilities, don't we? And there's different things that are required in those, those places. So today we're looking at Christ. Christ, Jesus Christ was already in the greatest position he could have been in. He was at the right hand of the throne of the Father. But then part of God's great, awesome plan from the beginning of time was for Christ to come in our place, live amongst men, be born of a virgin, live a life without sin, die on the cross in our place for our sins, to rise from the grave, and to show everyone that he was the first fruits of salvation, of death, and of life, and he's going to return one day. That was what Christ did. He never did really lose his position, but he had different responsibilities as he came grew up on this earth. You know, obviously he was born, he was a child, he was a baby, he was a toddler, he was a, he was a for lack of better terms, he was an elementary school age kid, and then he became a middle school age kid, and then a high school age, and then a young adult. And then he began his ministry there uh, in his 30s. So we, we've got that, that account of Jesus Christ. He moved through, and as he moved through, he had different responsibilities. But we look here in chapters 8 and 9. And uh, like I said, I've entitled this, Jesus' position is greater. So my first point, now listen, I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between chapter 8 and chapter 9. So you're just going to have to, hopefully you've got a Bible on hand. Because it's going to be really difficult for, for April to follow me through a lot of this stuff that I've got. Okay? So my first point is this. The heavenly or the greater high priest is at the throne of majesty. He is a greater high priest at the throne of majesty. And we're going to be looking at chapter 8, verse 1, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 8. And in chapter 9, verse 11 through 12. Okay? Like I said, it's, we're going to be... Back and forth, because chapter 9 really gives a whole lot of depth to chapter 8. And I think we kind of need that so we can understand it. So chapter 8, verse 1, says this. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, look at verses 3 through 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices... Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, if you have your Bibles, look over to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. It says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He is a greater high priest at the throne of majesty. That's who Jesus Christ is. And as we look at this, as the author brings us to this crux in the text, 
he notes, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. He, this means this is the sum of all things we are saying. Everything wraps up in this thing. So chapter 8 is kind of the hinge of the whole book, okay? It's a big deal. 8 and then 9 is the descriptor of what he's talking about there in chapter 8. We have such a high priest is what the author says. We are still making much of Jesus and in that, his high priestly position. So what is to make of this? Well, it's a big deal. It's where he's seated. It's a big deal because of where he's seated. It's a big deal because of what he's done. It's a big deal because he's only done something once that all the earthly priests have had to do over and over and over and over again. And he did it one time. If you flip back to Hebrews 1, just a few pages back, in Hebrews chapter 1, we read there in verse 3, he's talking about the Son. And he says, uh, the Son... Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So when we read this, we... we what is to make of this? That Jesus in his high priestly uh, position, we see that there is a position of high priest. There is a location of the throne of majesty. He has this position and where is he at? The two most honored positions that there is. He is. He has the power in the position of the place, but he has the responsibility in the location of the throne of majesty. Where is he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is, this is to recognize his inheritance as the only begotten Son of God. He is the only person who has the right and the authority to sit at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Many a times you hear majesty, it's a reference to God the Father and in heaven. That's what it's talking about. So he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is his inheritance. Where is he seated? He's seated by the throne. This is his prominence. This is to show that he is to be high and lifted up. We see him that way. When, when we think about how he was seen in the vision and he was high and lifted up in the throne and, and his, his robe filled the temple when Isaiah saw him, saw the Father in, in glory and he saw him there, he saw his prominence of the majesty in the heavens. That's talking about his glory. Jesus has that glory because he too is God. He is God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, our finite minds. A lot of times can't wrap our minds around it to really be able to grasp what that means. But he has his glory and he is there, there by the, by the Father in heaven. Why is he getting to sit there? Why does he get to sit on the right hand of the Father? It's because Jesus passed through the heavens. We discussed that last week. He completed the work of salvation and sat with the finished work of the greater high priest as he is at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. That is the right hand of the Father. That's where he is seated. Now this doesn't conclude Jesus' total work. Okay? This doesn't conclude Jesus' total work. But it does conclude Jesus' earthly work in the heavenly work for redemption and salvation of mankind. Because we know that Jesus is still communicating on our behalf. 
The Holy Spirit communicates. The Son hears it, and He communicates with the Father. We hear this. He's, Jesus is not up there idly by, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the next thing to do. Lord, when you want me to come back? Father, when you, when's the time? Because the Bible tells us that he, when He was on earth, He didn't know the time. He didn't know when He was going to return. So Jesus isn't up there just like nonchalantly doing nothing. He's still working. He's still working on behalf of us. Not for our salvation, but for our communication to the Father. So in knowing where Christ is currently located, we should seek those things which are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So we should set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Paul wrote that in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. So we set our minds not on the things of the earth, but on the things above. And it's talking about set your minds on Christ. Set your minds on Christ. The Holy Spirit is within us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. The Holy Spirit is counseling us. The Holy Spirit is uh, he's walking beside us. He's, he is the one present with us. And He is helping us to communicate with the Father through the Son. And He is doing His work, and Jesus is doing His work. George Guthrie wrote in his uh, in the commentary, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. It's got a big, long name. He wrote this. We can also see from this scripture how the author of Hebrews presented the appointment of the Son as the superior high priest from the scriptures that we looked at a few weeks ago, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 7, verse 1 through 28. Because we talked about how he was superior to the Aaronic line, Right? The Aaronic priesthood line, and he was superior to the Melchizedek. Although he's in the line of Melchizedek, he is a superior priest. This, uh, this uh, uh, commentator, George Guthrie, wrote, he said, that section started with the statement, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. We see that in chapter 5, verse 1. Well, now the author provides a parallel introduction to the corresponding section running from chapter 8, verse 3, to chapter 10, verse 18. We're going to get to the rest of that, um, potentially not next week, because I've got a guest speaker coming in, but the following week, which deals with the superior high priest, heavenly calling. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one to have something to offer. Every high priest has something to offer. We're going to look at that in just a moment. How the earthly high priest, when he came in, he had blood to offer on behalf of his sins and the sins of those who are ignorant. Christ came in with his own blood. Don't want to get ahead of myself because that's later with a greater covenant by a greater sacrifice. But we see that he is the greater high priest. So Jesus is the highest of the high priest because of his ultimate offer of sacrifice and ministering on behalf of God's people. He is the greater high priest. Let's look at point number two. He's a greater minister and mediator in a greater sanctuary, or for a greater sanctuary. A greater minister and mediator for a greater sanctuary. This is chapter 8, verse 2. I'll tell you the verses as I get there. It's, it's pretty choppy, okay? Uh, look there in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2. Now, this is the point of the things we're saying. It says there at the beginning of verse 1. He says, we have such a high priest. Now, within his high priest uh, efforts, he is chapter 8, verse 2, 
a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, then let's look at verses 6 to 13. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, means that there was no issues in it, then no place would have been sought for a second covenant. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming. Now this is a quote out of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, if I, if I remember correctly. I wrote it. Yes, 31, 31 through 34. He says this there in verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor. Excuse me, let me, let me read that again. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and, I will, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Then in verses 15 through 22 of chapter 9, verse 15 begins in this way. And for this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Okay, now that's a lot. You're like, man, that's a, that's a lot of scripture. But it's a lot to explain how Christ is a greater minister and mediator in a greater sanctuary. He's a greater minister and mediator in a greater sanctuary. So what, what does that mean? We're going to look at minister and mediator in just a moment. But how does he minister and where does he minister? Well, there originally there was an earthly high priest ministering in an earthly sanctuary. So you see that in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. So look there in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. The author of Hebrews wrote this, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, 
which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that held the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So here is the earthly sanctuary. This is where the lesser high priest ministered. This is where he went into, where he had to go into. Okay, I'm trying to, I know that you're like, man, this is, this is, this is kind of bogging down. But this is what we need to know because where Jesus went into the greater sanctuary is so much more powerful when you know the, the, limit, the limits of the earthly sanctuary and the limits of the earthly high priest. So we're, he's, the author is trying to get everybody to come to this grass to understand. Because this is a teaching book. Hebrews, some, some commentators think that Hebrews was a textbook to teach people where they come from Judaism and where Christ fulfills it all in the New Testament. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's all about telling how Jesus is greater. That's the reason why I gave it this theme. Jesus is greater. And so he's trying to take them through. You see, y'all, most of you knew, this is how the temple was. This is how the earthly sanctuary was. And he's telling them all these things and how ornate and how beautiful and how descriptive and how down to the detail God was. This needed to be this way. But even in making that, we look back over there in verse 7 of chapter 8. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he goes on. He's talking about there was, there was issues in that. There was an imperfect person offering sins for themselves and for other people in an imperfect sanctuary. But there's coming a perfect person who will minister in the perfect sanctuary which resides where God the Father is. And that's where the sacrifice has to be perfect. So he's talking about that. So there's the earthly sanctuary. Then there's limitations of the earthly service. Look there in verses 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10 of chapter 9. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot, <coughs> excuse me, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed to the time of Reformation. For it to be reformed in Christ. They're waiting for that time for it to be reformed in Christ. So we see the limitation of the earthly sanctuary in verses 6 through 10. We see that the earthly sanctuary, it was symbolic of the heavenly sanctuary that was to come. We see that in verse 9. In verse 10, we see the priest who entered could only perform the duty within the purity of consciousness of man concerning only the limits of man. And then it was limited based on the priests and the sacrifices offered by that priest. 
Because the blood of goats and lambs could only suffice for such a matter of time. That's the reason why they had to do it once a year. They had, to, they had to do it. And priests would go in all the time, but the high priest would go in once a year into the holiest of holies. And so he only went in that one time a year. Now, there's a lot more to that. I could spend a lot of time diving into that. But I only have so much time this Sunday morning to explain to you about Jesus' sacrifice, which is what I'm going to get to in just a moment. Then there's the heavenly sanctuary, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 through 14 tells us this. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, this is how he's a mediator, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the heavenly sanctuary is where Christ has gone. He's the only one who could go there. The most holy place is in heaven with the Father. So when Christ died and shed his blood, he was able to enter with the perfect blood to suffice and satisfy God's requirement of sacrifice. We see that in 9, 11, and 12. The New Living Translation reads this way. I kind of like the way this reads because that whole works of death is, is kind of interesting. So the New Living translates verse 14 this way. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our hearts from deeds that led to death or lead to death so that we can worship the living God. We can't worship the living God before salvation. You can't do it. You've got to know Him. I talked about that the other week. You can't just say, I wanted an experience of Jesus. I want to know Him. And when you know Him, you know you should be worshiping Him. Because if it's just an experience, you don't know. You just do what's convenient. You do the checking of the box. Came to Sunday school, check. Came to worship, checks. Uh, should I go to Wednesday night? I don't know. Is that biblical? I don't know. I don't know if I'll check that box. I may stay home. I may do this. I may do that. You know, we can go do this and that at those same hours of every single day, but we can't come to church for an hour. We need that. Don't use Wednesday night to say, well, you know what? I just, you know, I just don't want to go tonight pretty lame excuse we we need that feeling we need to be engaged some churches don't have a Wednesday night they may have a small group sometime during the week don't use it as a cop-out I mean goodness gracious what do we ask two hours on Sunday morning and then that becomes too much too much for a savior now listen I understand sometimes we get sick Sometimes we have surgeries. Sometimes we go on vacation. I understand those things. I'm not trying to tell you those are evil and you're doing sinful things. But I'm just telling you, if you're just being lazy, cut it out. If you join us online, cut it out. Come on to church. 
If you're more than healthy enough to get up and go to the store, you could come to church. That was, that was a bonus. So, whew. for by the power of the eternal spirit, this is still coming out of that New Living Translation. I'm trying to read to you, make it easier to understand. For the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's what he did. And this is not only for our purification, our salvation, but ultimately for our service to the king. Worship is service. Worship is service. Worship is our life. It's what we give to him. Due to Christ's workings on earth and his satisfying in heaven, he is our mediator and he is the greatest mediator of the greater covenant. And Jesus mediates this new covenant through the Trinity and creates the new covenant through his mercy instead of through the law and of the old covenant. So you read there in chapter 9 verse 14. In verse 14 it tells us how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And in chapter 8 verse 12, if you go back and look there. God tells them, this was even a quote back from Jeremiah. He says things are going to be different in this new covenant. And in verse 12 we have this written. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. This is his mercy. This is his mercy. So Jesus mediates that new covenant through the Trinity and creates the new covenant through his mercy instead of through the law with the old covenant. And as mediator and as our promise keeper, we talked about that last week, he counseled the new covenant in his blood as we will look at momentarily through a greater sacrifice here in just a moment. So Jesus' blood is the seal of the new covenant and we remember this every time we partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. It's what we do. We remember the shed blood of Christ. And we read this almost every time uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 25. It says, in the same manner, talking about taking the, taking, as you take the bread. Uh, he says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He is the new covenant. His blood is the new covenant. That's the reason why when we partake of the Lord's Supper, if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are not to partake of the Lord's Supper. He's not your Lord. We need to be mindful of that. You have taken it unworthily, the scripture talks about. And that's caused people to have bad attitudes. They weren't following Christ as Lord. And they were doing whatever they wanted to do. So they took it unworthily. And he said, that's the reason why some of y'all are dying. The seal, this wreck symbolizes the, the, the shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, I know it's not down here currently. But when we take of it, this is symbolic of the new covenant. That we hold out hope because we know Christ is returning. He's coming back. I need to get to that verse. I'm about to get there. Last point. It's a little longer, but we're just hang in there. I told you we was going to get it. Point number three. A greater covenant through a greater sacrifice. Now, I've already read chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. We know that's a, uh, you can go back and look. That's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 that he quotes there. But let's look at verses 23 through 28 of chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 through 28. This is where I wanted to get to. 
Seems like every sermon, I'm just trying to get this last point because that's where we really talk about Jesus and what he's done. Chapter 9, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Okay, that's talking about Jesus never went into the holiest of holies. He never did go in there as the high priest on earth. He didn't do that. But let me tell you what he did do. Let me tell you what he did do. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God. Why? For us. For us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This is beautiful language that we get to read here. And I, I had a whole lot of stuff that William Barclay said, but I'm going to skip it. Because it's just quotes. And, and you can go read Barclay if you want to about that. It's about die thinky and son thinky and all this other kind of stuff. And, and how a son thinky, you got to come in on this. Everybody comes in on the same level. It's kind of like a marriage. But a die thinky is this. He comes in and we don't have nothing to say. He offers the covenant. And he is the governor of the covenant. And the ruler of the covenant. And either you accept it or you don't. It's a die thinky. Anyway, I'm going to keep moving now. Because this is the deal. There are certain marks of this greater covenant that Jesus brought. This is in verses 7 through 13. Although I'm not reading all those verses again. The greater covenant is not something revolutionary. The greater covenant is not something revolutionary. Why is that? Because scripture pointed to the limited ability of the old covenant. And spoke to a new covenant to come. So this idea of a new covenant was not in and of itself shocking. But in whom the covenant came may have been the difficulty in understanding. The Jews were not looking for somebody to be born out of Nazareth who was born in Bethlehem to be him. Why is that? Because that's just not what they were looking for. They should have been. It's all in the scripture in the Old Testament. But yet they didn't want it. Many of the Jews refute Isaiah 53, I believe it is. It's so clear about what Christ was to do. But the greater covenant is not something revolutionary. The greater covenant will not be new in quality and kind. To put it simply, the old covenant was bound by its time, making it one that ages. But the new covenant is limitless due to the eternality of Christ. The greater covenant is new in its scope. How is that? Well, if you look back over there in those verses, um, matter of fact, I think it's somewhere around, uh, it's actually in verse 8 where it says this. You can see that as a reference to this. It's, it's, uh, it's new in its scope. Because the greater covenant is to bring both houses of Israel and Judah together from their division. The greater covenant is new in its universality. It's for all men, not just for the Jews. The greater covenant is new in that it is in the heart. The old covenant was a physically written, physically obeyed covenant. Whereas now, whereas now the new covenant is spiritually written on the heart and daily obeyed in spirit and truth, which the flesh will flesh out 
But that's where it's written, as it says, if you read that over there in chapter 8, uh, in the latter parts there uh, of, of chapter 8. And the greater covenant is new in its effectiveness in forgiveness. God said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and to their sins and to their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's in verse 12 of chapter 8. This is, this is how uh, these are certain marks of the greater covenant that Jesus brought. And we conclude by looking into Jesus' work and being the purification of all rights unto salvation. In chapter 9, verse 23. We're going to walk through these with some of these ideas. Chapter 9, verse 23. The copies of the heavenly things had to be continually, had to continually be purified. But the things in heaven would only accept and require one sacrifice. And that is of the only begotten Son of God. It's the only one. As the greater minister, mediator, and sacrifice, Jesus entered into the holiest place for us so we may go there too. We see that in chapter 9, verse 24. We see in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 9, Jesus, unlike earthly priests, gave himself once as the sacrifice, the sacrifice that would eternally meet the holy requirements of the Father and be the substitute in our place to satisfy the wrath of God on sin. The scripture tells us there, at the closing of that passage of scripture, it is appointed unto every man to die once. That's true. This is the physical death of the body of flesh. But there is a second death for those who do not know Christ as Lord. It is a death, maybe not of mind and spirit, but it is a death of separation for eternity. The scripture makes it very clear that Christ died once for sin in the flesh as a man to cover the sins of many. Now, you may say, why the word many? It is because not all will receive salvation. Not everyone will receive salvation. We don't believe in a universalism kind of belief. Everybody's not going to heaven. It wouldn't be heaven then, it'd be earth. Do y'all think this is heaven? No, it's not. God doesn't just go, okay, well, we're just going to put you on a big spaceship and transport everybody to heaven. Well, that's not heaven. There are people who refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And God says, the Lord says, there is a place for them. It was not designed for them. I designed that for Satan and his demons. But yet, if you refuse my offer of salvation, you will go there too. God don't want it. It's not God's desire. It's his desire that, that none perish apart from him, but that all come to repentance. That's his desire. But there's going to be some that won't. There's, matter of fact, not just some. There's going to be a lot. Heaven's going, there's going to be a lot more room in heaven than what you experience now. If you live in a subdivision, there ain't going to be no reaching across and just touching your neighbor's house if you live in a little subdivision like that. It ain't going to be like that in heaven. There's going to be plenty of room. Plenty of room to rejoice. Plenty of room to praise. Plenty of room to glorify Jesus. Because you know what? There ain't going to be that many people there. There ain't going to be that many people there. Just a couple of weeks ago, from Romans 5, 8, many have had the word in their mouth and in their heart. There's many who's had that word in their mouth and in their heart. And with it being so close, some can mimic the lives of those who have done more. Some can mimic the lives of those who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But not everyone will be saved. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. I mean, Jesus said that. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. They've been that 
close. It always, every time I read that and I think about that, it makes me think about that old commercial where that fisherman dude had that little, that little fishing line and he had something on the end of it and he's like, ooh, you almost got it, you almost got it. Now, Jesus ain't out there tempting us for that, okay? I don't want you to misunderstand me, but that's just what goes on in my little pea brain mind when I think about that. But so many people are so close. God is offering it, and he's not taking it away from them. But he's saying, look, I am the Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm all these things. Do you not see it? You're so close. Do you not see it in your family member's life? Do you not see it in your friend's life? You just got to submit and confess Christ is Lord. You're so close. So close. And Jesus Christ, he don't climb back on that cross every time somebody thinks that they're lost. Jesus died once for all. He died once for all. So either you accept him and his sacrifice the one time he gave it, or, or you don't accept it at all. And God is not obligated to come to you time after time after time. You think about that old hymn, time after time, he has waited before, and now he is waiting again. Jesus ain't waiting. Jesus is knocking on the door. He's knocked on the door. Either you answer it or he goes to the next door. God's not obligated to you and me to keep knocking. So when he does, respond. Because he is the seeker. He is the one that is coming for you. You do realize that. The Bible says there's none, there's none good, no, not one. No one seeks after God. God comes seeking after people. And when he seeks after you, you need to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Give him your heart and your life. Don't put it off because he may not come to your door again. It says there to conclude that passage of scripture. It tells us there. And as it was appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Apart from sin for salvation. Listen. So to those who wait eagerly, Christ is returning. Our minister, mediator, his sacrifice will return, but it will not be like it was the first time. He's not going to come humbly in some place where, half, where the vast majority of the world didn't know it was happening. I'm going to tell you something. When Christ comes that second time, the eastern sky is going to break forth. He's going to come forth. The trumpet's going to blow. And everybody's going to know. Time's up. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it will not be unto salvation at that point. It will not be. Because it's not a universal faith. It will be because of the fact that there's just nothing else they'll know what to say. That's just who He is. But who is He to you today? Who is He to you today? He is the high priest. He is the greater minister. He is the greater mediator. And he has mediated this new covenant for you and I so that we can have access to the Father. He is the mediator. He is the new covenant. 